shining a beacon on the bazaar. Ahoy there, Night Owls, and uh, welcome to another edition of Kraken Cove Radio. Um, I'm Matt, and today I'm on my own. Uh, there's no Benny with me today. Um, reason being, he seems to have had, uh, let me see here, he says a mild depilatory disaster. Um, I don't know what that means. Uh, I'll just look that up. And um, Oh my god. Oh my god, it seems like he's had a slight shaving accident with the testes. The big purple vein, he seems to have nicked it and almost bled out. Pollard, Pollard. So I hope you're all wishing uh, Benny well. Uh, I'm hoping he's got a big old sticking plaster on that uh, on that pop bollock. Uh, <laughs> oh god, it makes me feel quite sick. Uh, it really does. I feel quite nauseous about that. Uh, <laughs> I might be laughing. It's no laughing matter, really, is it? Um... But yeah, so so I'll be on my own, and I think this evening, I think it's a strange time of year. We don't know whether we're coming or going, going or coming. <laughs> so I think what we might be needing is some mysteries, a few mysteries in our lives. So I think that's going to be the theme of this evening. A few strange, odd occurrences. Let's just see where that takes us. So let's get things uh, rocking for now with a lovely little jazz standard from Ozzy Organ and his onanistic orangutans. I'll strum yours if you yank mine. Take it away. A note to self by Stronger Binoculars vis-a-vis Seeing Mrs. Wilberforce, bathroom, mainland. Oh, well, that was, uh, let me see now. Uh, that was Ozzy Organ and his onanistic orangutans playing Alstrom Yours of You Yank Mine. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you've had a nice cup of tea or a drink of something lovely. Let's kick things off now with a little mystery that I found here from Ireland. And this is the mystery of Ireland's worst driver. In the mid-2000s, a peculiar crime wave struck Ireland. A truly terrible driver was at large, causing multiple accidents, drink driving, leaving the scenes of accidents and speeding, or parking wherever they pleased. From County Cork to County Cavan, this vague vehicular violator evaded the grip of the Garda, month after month and eventually year after year. Over 50 separate violations occurred involving multiple vehicles across the whole of Ireland, but one name cropped up at each crime scene, the Kaiser Soze of car crime. It was the name, Bravo Jazdi. The problem the police were having was that each parking infraction he was caught for Mr. Pravo Jazdi produced papers containing a different address. As such, when an attempt to prosecute the parking fine perpetrator, the trail went cold. 
Pravojazdi could not be reached. The Garda were on high alert for Pravojazdi on the highways of Ireland, each officer keen to be the one to nab this infamous B-Road bandit. But when the truth was discovered, none of these keen-eyed constables seemed quite so eager to pluck the plaudits for cracking the discombobulating car crime case. For Pravo Jazdi had been revealed, and he wasn't actually a man, or even a human. Pravo Jazdi, when translated from the Polish, means driving license. The Irish police computer system had logged Pravo Jazdi as an individual, and each time a keen-eyed copper spotted the name on the papers of the accused automobile arrestee, it was filed in the system, and a new address was allocated to the shadowy Pravo Jazdi. After the briefest of language lessons, the Garda never repeated this mistake, but the Polish immigrant community still raise a glass of vodka from time to time to their own version of the highwayman Dick Turpin, Mr. Pravo Jazdy. Jazz by name, jazz by nature. That's the name of the game here. So why don't we have a little bit of music here from the German jazz innovator Kasper K. Klackervalve with Ficken mein Klackervalve, das ist gut. Well, that was uh, German jazz innovator Kasper K. Klackervalve, and I won't repeat what his, uh, his track was called because I just put that through Google Translate for the first time, and I do apologise to any of the German listeners out there. Um, bang out of order there, Casper. Uh, yes, sir. Let's try and up your game, mate. Hey? There's a good lad. So, I think what we need to do now is have another little mystery. Let's, let's delve into my little mystery pile. So, this next story is a bit of a weird one. Um, they're always funny here on Cracking uh, Cove Radio. So let's delve a bit deeper and a little bit darker into the disappearance of Nicholas Barclay. It was getting late on the evening of June the 13th, 1994 in San Antonio, Texas, when 13-year-old Nicholas Barclay, who had been playing basketball with his friends, decided it was time to head for home so he called to ask for a ride. Nicholas could be a difficult child, getting into rows and even physical fights with his family. So the relationship wasn't the best, and it wasn't surprising that his mother and older brother both said no, telling him to make his own way home. Nicholas Barclay waved goodbye to his pals, started walking, and promptly vanished. Now, Nicholas had run away before, sometimes to punish his family for a row, sometimes to get up to further mischief but he had always returned within a day or so. Nicholas's mother had tried so hard with the relationship with her youngest son. She had tried counselling sessions for both of them separately as well as together, psychiatric visits with him alone, then again with her accompanying, without any success whatsoever. But what did seem to work was when his mother moved her younger brother, Jason, into the house. The older male role model had a really positive impact on Nicholas, and his behaviour improved. He still played truant, but it was infinitely better than his behaviour had been previously. But still, his petty crimes had begun to add up, and that next day, Nicholas was due before juvenile court to be sentenced for a wide range of petty offences, from shoplifting to threatening teachers in school. And if found guilty, he could be sent to a young offenders institute. 
That's why many presumed Nicholas Barclay had decided to cut and run. No one was too worried at first, knowing Nicholas only had the clothes on his back and a five dollar bill, and as soon as he got hungry he'd probably return. But soon police opened a missing persons investigation, though there were virtually no leads on where Nicholas could have gone. As he had only five pounds to his name, the likelihood of him securing a ticket on public transportation was low, as was the possibility of him finding room and board somewhere. It seemed the only explanation was that he'd hitchhiked out of town, and if he had, there was even less hope of finding him. Then three months later, police received a phone call from Jason Barkley, Nicholas's uncle. He claimed that he'd seen Nicholas trying to break into their garage, but when police arrived, Jason told them he'd fled. It was the only deed in the case so far, though it eventually panned out to be a dead end. But then, miraculously, after three years and four months of searching for the boy who disappeared without a trace, on October the 27th, 1997, FBI officials received an anonymous phone call about Nicholas Barclay, living at a youth shelter in Linares, Spain. The caller said they believed he had been abused there for many years before escaping because Nicholas could not remember what had happened to him during this time period due to amnesia or trauma-induced memory loss. When authorities contacted law enforcement, it turns out that one man really did go by the name Nicholas. They recovered children's clothes with items of identification matching those reported stolen when Nicholas went missing back home. Nicholas was immediately dispatched back to America by plane, and the family welcomed him back at once with open arms and an open home. They had kept his room just as he'd left it, and had been anxiously awaiting his return. They missed him so much that they didn't notice the glaring inconsistencies between the son who had gone missing and the one who had been returned to them. The Nicholas Barclay who went missing in 1994 was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy of 13 with a violent temper and an unruly attitude problem. The Nicholas Barclay who was found in Spain in 1997 was a dark-haired, brown-eyed boy of 16 who was eerily calm and made those around him uneasy. Despite the fact he neither looked nor acted like their son, the Barclay family insisted, without a doubt, that the boy was their son, Nicholas Barclay. The harrowing story of the Barclay's pain and its subsequent Hollywood happy ending made national headlines. A missing boy reunited with his family after years of abuse drew news crews and reporters to the Barclays' home, day in, day out. He also drew investigators who were determined to find out what had happened to Nicholas Barclay during the three years he was missing. According to Nicholas, he had been kidnapped on his way home from the park, where he had been playing basketball with his friends. Then he had been put on a plane and taken to Europe, where his kidnappers had forced him into a child sex trafficking ring. Eventually, he said, he had escaped and made it to safety, where he was discovered by local law enforcement. As for his appearance, he said that the kidnappers had changed his eye colour and dyed his hair to conceal his identity. After hearing the accounts of Nicholas Barclay's ordeal, private investigator Charlie Parker became suspicious. The hair and eye claims were suspicious, as it was unlikely that the kidnappers went to such lengths to alter his eye colour, or could have be ever been able to. He was also put off by the difference in personality. 
the Nicholas who returned to the family was speaking with a Spanish accent and struggled with English. Though such a traumatic circumstance would possibly result in a more subdued demeanour and the victims were withdrawing into themselves, Parker felt that it was something much more than that. He didn't seem withdrawn to Parker. He simply seemed more mature, older even, than his reported 16 years. To, to Parker's surprise, he was correct. Nicholas Barclay was not in fact 16, as he claimed to be, but 23. Furthermore, he wasn't even Nicholas Barclay. He was a Frenchman named Frédéric Bourdin. Frédéric Bourdin, also known as the Chameleon by Interpol, was a French criminal and serial imposter who had spent his entire life impersonating missing children and creating false identities and names. He'd been wanted by Interpol for several years and was believed to have masqueraded under no less than 500 false identities. When Bourdin had heard the story of the distraught American family looking for their missing son, he had easily slipped into the persona, having gotten the idea when a Spanish police officer suggested that he bore a resemblance to the boy. He was able to keep up the charade for three and a half months, fooling the Spanish authorities, the FBI, and even the Barclay family. Soon, though, Parker realised that Baudin may not have been fooling the entire Barclay family. Jason, Nicholas's uncle, had apparently begun to question Baudin's authenticity as his nephew. And as soon as Parker asked to interview him about this, Jason committed suicide, taking a massive drugs overdose. Jason Barclay's death raised Parker's suspicions even more, and eventually outed Frederic Baudin to the family. The authorities arrested Baudin and sentenced him to six years in prison, double the recommended time. Once again, the Barclay family was left without their son, the weight of which was so much more the second time after they believed he was finally home. Baudin, however, didn't believe that the Barclay family's grief was real. While in police custody, he proposed a disturbing theory. Why would the Barclay family accept him into their home so willingly when it was so clear that he wasn't their son unless they had something to hide? Furthermore, he suggested that that something was murder. That one or all of the Barclay family members had murdered Nicholas and adopted Bourdain knowing full well he was an imposter, to cover it up. Charlie Parker bought into Frederick Bourdain's theories and has been working towards proving them ever since. Using evidence gleaned from initial investigations and others that were opened after Bourdain's imprisonment, Parker has put together a compelling case. He believes that Nicholas Barclay's rage eventually pushed a family member over the edge, Police had been called to the home on more than one occasion and the family had vocally expressed their displeasure with his attitude. Jason Barclay's death was also seen as an admission to something, as it had come at an unusual time. Though there is no body, and there has been no confession but that of a known criminal, 
Parker remains confident that the Barclays are not blameless in their son's disappearance, and is hell-bent on discovering exactly what they had to do with it. So far he has nothing, but that doesn't mean he won't stop trying, and Frédéric Bourdin has the last word in this. I don't have any confessions. There's nobody. Murder is very simple and very basic. I think something happened inside that house, but I can't prove it. Well, thank you for the final word there from Frederick Bourdin. Imagine, missing child, welcome him home, and he's a 23-year-old Frenchman. Some people prefer that. Some people would welcome with open arms a mystery Frenchman into their house, but, you know, it's not for everyone, is it, now? I, for one, would welcome the company, being uh, very, very lonely here at the lighthouse at the moment. A little back rub or, uh, you know, a glass of wine would be nice. Let's just see how the evening pans out, eh, Frederick? <laughs> Let's not rush things, though. No. Well, I think what we need now is a little bit more music, so uh, how about we go back to an old favourite of ours from last time, which is um, Freddy Noodles and his Noodlers? And and one of his great jazz standards, he who smelt it, dealt it. Ah. Oh Christ. Oh, this whiskey tastes like piss. Oh, it is piss. Not again. Well, welcome back there, everybody. It's a great little track there from Freddy Noodles and his Noodlers with Who Smelt It, Dealt It. But let's move away from um, smealing it and dealing it. <laughs> oh, Christ. And um, let's look at a new little mystery. I think that's going to be the answer for us, a nice little mystery. And what we've got here is a piece by Ancient Origins by Alexa Vucevic. Great name there, Alex. Alexa. <clears throat> this is a piece that caught my attention. It's called Valley of Headless Men. Mysterious decapitations in Canada's Nahani Valley. The northwestern territories of Canada are truly one of Earth's last true wild places. One of its special national park reserves, called the Nahani Valley, is, however, a little bit wilder than most. It is home to some strange myths and mysteries, and boasts a fearsome reputation for being a haunted and deadly place. This remote wild valley is not just inhospitable due to its rugged terrain, extreme weather, and predators, but is also deadly due to some unexplained circumstances. Over the decades, many unfortunate travellers and explorers have gone missing, or they turn up dead and beheaded the number of decapitated bodies found within Nahani Valley have earned it the nickname Valley of Headless Men. What's the explanation to this mystery? Many have said that the Nahani Valley is one of the last truly unexplored places in the world. Situated within the rugged Northwest Territories of Canada, well over 500 kilometers or 311 miles from the nearest city of Yellowknife. It is one of those nature's nooks that persevere, in spite of mankind's busy expansion. Reaching Nahani can be a challenge, if ever you find a reason to journey inside it. 
It's hard to reach and the best routes into it are via air, water or a long overland journey from the abandoned village of Tungsten. The valley is situated above the 60th parallel north which puts it in line with the rest of Canada's wild territories. Cities and civilization up north are few and far between and surviving the wilderness can be a challenge or even fatal for the inexperienced traveller. Thanks to its remarkable natural beauty, its unique geography, its features and wealth of flora and fauna, Nahani Valley was proclaimed a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1978. In fact, it was one of the first four natural heritage locations to be given this status. But this lofty proclamation has not given it a flurry of visitors. Due to its remoteness, Nahani Valley has remained largely untouched over the centuries. It is home to many diverse animal species, many of which are predatorial. Large grizzly bears and timber wolves are the chief carnivores there, and people are seldom seen in this nature. Historically, the lands around the Nahani Valley were home to the people of the Dene indigenous tribes, who dwelt here for many centuries. However, it seems that they never lived exactly along the Nahani River and its tributaries, from which the Nahani Valley gets its name. The oral histories passed down through generations speak of another tribe living there, the one called Naha. The Dene tell that the Naha were a warlike tribe, living in the high mountains and descending into the lowlands to raid and to kill. They became the main foes of the Dene peoples and were greatly feared by them. The name Nahani itself is of Dene origin and means the river of the land of the Naha people. These oral histories and the name itself are very important as they are certainly proof that a different indigenous tribe once dwelt there. However, the Dene state that the Naha people simply vanished at one time, ceasing their raids and disappearing altogether. Mystery surrounds these so-called Naha, but no trace of them has ever been found. So far, they are only found in stories. Could they have migrated elsewhere, succumbed to a disease, died out, or have they simply stayed in the Nahani River Valley to this very day, hiding in plain sight? Some speculate that it might be so. This mystery would likely have died out quickly, being dubbed just another legendary story of an indigenous tribe. But several eerie deaths and disappearances within Nahani Valley achieved the opposite result. The mysteries surrounding this place were only fueled further and Nahani became the focus of many mystery hunters. And most of this focus was on a special place within the valley, one called the 200 Mile Gorge. The Dene natives speak of an unknown evil dwelling there, and few ever enter it, especially because of the events that transpired there. For it's the 200 mile gorge that gained the grisly epithet of the Valley of the Headless Men. The origins of this eerie nickname can be traced to the early 20th century, at the time of the famous Klondike Gold Rush. At this time, many would-be prospectors wanted to test their fortunes and head out to the remote Canadian wilderness, especially Yukon. 
It was known to contain gold in its rivers and soils, and a treasure could be quickly made by those lucky enough to strike gold. Two of these prospectors decided to forego the traditional routes and locations leading to Yukon, and to instead try their luck in the Nahani Valley. They were two brothers of Métis ancestry, Willie and Frank McLeod. In 1906 they canoed upriver to reach the Nahani Valley, and that was the last time anyone saw them alive. In 1908, two years later, a search party discovered their skeletons at the remains of a camp. Both were headless. Seemingly they were asleep when they were attacked. The body of one of the brothers lay reaching out towards a gun, indicating a need for defence. A third man, their companion surnamed Weir, was missing. From here on the mysteries deepened. Who would decapitate so ruthlessly two peaceful prospectors? And what happened to their heads? Rumours began spreading and many wild theories were put forward. Some spoke of feuding prospectors killing one another. Others attributed the deaths to wild animals. While some spoke of inhospitable warlike natives leaving the headless corpses as a warning to other trespassers. Theories floated about until another corpse was discovered in 1917. It was that of a Swiss prospector named Martin Jürgensen. His body was discovered, decapitated, next to the remains of his cabin. It was burned to the ground. It is supposed that he struck gold in the vicinity, as he wrote of it back home, before ending up beheaded. An article from the February 15, 1947 issue of the Deseret News newspaper, titled Headless Valley Myths Dispelled, goes in depth while trying to bash all the mystery and find logic for the murders. Much of the article's contents are unsubstantiated and mere guesswork. There, it is said that Jurgensen and the McLeod brothers were all murdered for the gold that they had discovered. No evidence for this, though, was ever found. In 1927, another body was discovered in Nahani, belonging to a man nicknamed Yukon Fisher. Variously dubbed an outlaw and a prospector, this man was sought by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for several years before his death. The officials found his skeleton on the banks of Bennett Creek, quite close to the place where the bodies of the McLeod brothers were found in 1908. His death was never fully explained, nor was the fact that it was known to possess a solid number of gold nuggets with which he purchased goods on the frontier. Then, in 1931, another body was found. This time it was that of Phil Powers. His charred remains were discovered in the ashes of what was his cabin. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police were quick to attribute his death to a faulty stovepipe, but their explanation was repeatedly debunked by various sources. Phil Powers, for what it's worth, was likely murdered and his cabin set ablaze. Many others simply disappeared without a trace in the remote wilderness of the Nahani Valley. In 1928, one prospector named Angus Hall ventured ahead of his party, was never seen again. Another pair of prospectors, Joe Mulholland and Bill Epier, disappeared in 1936. For many years they were searched for, but never found. The only thing discovered was their cabin, burned to the ground. A woman named Annie Lafarette 
also went missing in Nahani. In 1926, with her hunting party, she was present in the valley near Flat River, but got lost in the wilderness and disappeared. Many months later, an Indian by the name of Big Charlie claimed to have seen the woman climbing a hill while totally naked, seemingly having lost her mind. She became just another of the many victims of the wild Nahani Valley. So inhospitable was the Nahani Valley that even in the 1920s it was still unexplored. Maps of the region showed almost nothing except two flat lines that indicated the two main rivers, Nahani and Flat. It would take decades for an accurate map to be created. Of course, over the years, many sources tried to discredit the mysteries. To that end, some claimed that the original headless corpses, the MacLeod brothers, were not really headless, but in fact were identified by the remnants of the hair on their skulls. However, there is no evidence for either of the theories. Much of this can be attributed to the advanced age of the event, 1908. But discrediting or not, deaths continued to pile up in the Nahani Valley. In 1945, a miner from Ontario, whose name is now lost, was found dead, still in his sleeping bag. His head, however, was never found. Around that time, another trapper succumbed to the inhospitable wilderness. He was John O'Brien, and was found frozen next to his campfire, his rigid hands still clutching a match. His death was clearly due to freezing. And it is true. In winter, the Nahani Valley really is inhospitable. With the freezing cold and the ravaging timber wolves, this nature can claim the lives of the most experienced outdoorsmen. But in the warmer months, this valley transforms into a truly unique environment. So much so that many dubbed it tropical. It can turn into an oasis, being warm and lush with vegetation. One can even bathe in the creeks and the streams, fearing no coldness. And that's all due to the hot sulphur springs that can be found here. Hot springs lie all beneath the valley and give it an additional dose of mystery. The sulphur can often fill the air with an odd smell. And more than that, the combination of the hot sulphury air and the cool arctic air above it created thick and mysterious mists that often cover the entire Nahani Valley, obscuring it from view and creating an eerie, otherworldly ambience. This gives rise to tales of a mysterious tropical valley that exists somewhere within the huge Nahani Valley. While there is a chance that the clash of the hot sulfuric air and the cold arctic climate can create a unique environment, a tropical valley still seems far-fetched. Nevertheless, legends just keep mounting up. Scientists, those few that ever set foot in the valley, discovered numerous remains of prehistoric animals, chiefly the bones of mastodons or mammoths and ancient bear dogs. To that end, many have said that these animals still live within the deepest, most remote nooks of the Nahani. Tales exist of trappers seeing fresh tracks of prehistoric mammals and bringing back huge ivory tusks with flesh and hair still visible. 
Other tales state that many of the Dene tribe elders living in the area were able to accurately draw pictures of mastodons, as if from memory. Another prevalent story tells of the prehistoric bear dogs, or Amphisionidae, still roaming the valley. In the end, no one can accurately say what is transpiring within the mysterious Nahani Valley. Up to 44 persons have either died or disappeared within it, starting from 1908. And that is an eerily high number for just one, albeit enormous, valley. Plenty of odd facts contribute to the prevalent sense of enigma here. The indigenous Dene locals have avoided the valley for centuries, claiming that it is somehow haunted by evil. Others state that Nahani Valley is the entrance to the so-called Hollow Earth. True, the valley is dotted with subterranean caverns, some 250 of them, and many remain unexplored. However, we are quite sure that the Earth's belly is rather hot, more than hollow. Nevertheless, Nahani remains veiled in enigma. Perhaps it was the territorial Naha tribesmen who have not yet disappeared, who have claimed all those lives, seeking to protect their last natural refuge. Or it was simply the harsh and inhospitable wilderness of remote Canada that claimed those lives. Still, harsh nature cannot behead bodies and burn down cabins. And because of that, the mystery remains. And that's a true mystery indeed, I think, there, coming from the uh, Nahani Valley in Canada. Strange place, very odd, very weird, and um, I'm not sure I'll be uh, getting a flight out there anytime soon. I uh, <laughs> personally like to do the older Iron Apple circuit still. It's the only place I can get a gig these days. It's, uh, times are quite hard since the wife left. But, you know, let's keep it uh, let's keep it chipper now. Here we are on uh, Kraken Cove Radio. And let's have a little bit of music now from uh, Daddy O. Jones playing Gotta Get a Better Henrietta. And these are the prison recordings where he was serving 12 years for bigamy. <laughs> Christ, I need to lose some weight. Look at the state of that. Absolutely disgraceful. Disgraceful. Anyway, welcome back there from a big thanks to Daddy O. Jones there playing Gotta Get a Better Henrietta. Um, I don't know how it managed to find so many, uh, so many women called Henrietta. Yellow Pages? No? Weird. Weird anyway. Probably something to do with his mother. So uh, anyway, that's uh, we're at the point now at the older Crack and Cove Radio where usually Ben would say, uh, oh, "It's not that time already." <laughs> He's not here, so he can't stop me from uh, putting on an awful uh, impression of him. It's not that time already. <laughs> yeah, a bit like that sometimes. He doesn't really sound like that. It's just after uh, after ten years uh, working in a lighthouse with him, it, it can sound like that after a bit. You know, just how it is. We do miss you though, Benny, so come on back soon. Love you, love you lots. So moving on, we're going to look at one last story. One last story, and this is a strange one, and he's actually a bit of a hero of mine, is this guy. Edward Leedskalnin. And he's only a little chap, 100 pounds, 5 foot tall. But let's hear all about him. Edward Leedskalnin. Born January the 12th, 1887. Died December the 7th, 1951 
was a Russian Empire emigrant to the United States and self-taught engineer who single-handedly built the Coral Castle in Florida, which was a place that was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1984. Leedskelnin was also known for developing theories of magnetism. He was born on January 12, 1887 in Stamardiena Parish in Latvia. Little is known of his childhood aside from the fact that his parents were not wealthy and he received only a fourth grade formal education. Edward was a sickly boy who often spent times reading books, helping him to develop an inquisitive mind and a lifelong yearning for knowledge. It was suggested that he learn stonemasonry from his father and practice this craft in Latvia after coming of age. At the age of 26 he was engaged to marry Agnes Skufst, who was 10 years younger than him. However, the girl, who were lead Scanion, later referred to as his sweet 16, broke their engagement. He then decided to emigrate to North America. On April 7th, 1912, Leed Skalnin arrived in New York City. After looking for suitable work around the East Coast until August, he relocated to the Pacific Northwest, which was experiencing a logging boom. On June 5th, 1917, while in Oregon, he filled in his draft registration stating that he was self-employed and engaged in axe handle manufacturing. The 1920 census data revealed that he resided in Reed Sport, Oregon. In the winter of 1922 to 23, after allegedly contracting tuberculosis, Leed Scalnin moved to the warmer climate of Florida, where he purchased an undeveloped parcel of land in Florida City, which at the time was very lightly inhabited. On February 27, 1923, the Homestead Enterprise newspaper published a notice that said, E. Leedskalnin, a Californian, has purchased an acre of the R. L. Moser Homestead and is planning to erect a home soon. And what a home he erected! Over the next 20 years, Leedskalnin constructed a massive structure there that he called Rock Gate and dedicated, in his own words, to the girl who had left him years before. Working alone and mostly at night, Leedskalnin eventually quarried and sculpted more than 1,100 tons of oolite limestone into an architectural and engineering landmark that would later be known as the Coral Castle. He used various basic tools available under his modest means including salvaged timber and old car parts. Not really coral, the huge stones that comprise the castle are composed of oolitic limestone. The coral designation came about later when visitors noted fossilised coral and shells in some of the rocks. The average weight of the stones is about 14 tonnes each. With these huge rocks, Ed built walls, erected a tower, and a 22-ton obelisk. He made a variety of furniture, including beds and rocking chairs, as well as a fountain, table, a well, sundial, and throne. Apparently fascinated with astronomy, Ed carved a stone telescope, and even erected large stone depictions of Jupiter, Saturn, and the moon from blocks weighing as much as 
23 tons. For the most part, each carving and piece is made from a single stone. The tallest stones reach 25 feet, while the heaviest rocks weigh nearly 30 tons. Using no joint compound or mortar, the massive stones which combine together are held in place by their own weight. They are so well constructed and heavy that during the Category 5 Hurricane Andrew in 1992, not a single one of the stones shifted and the 8-foot wall was not affected and remains to this day of uniform height around the wall. Perhaps the most spectacular structure on the grounds is the 8-foot tall revolving gate. Carved to exacting specifications, it clears the walls next to it by a mere quarter of an inch. Before it needed repair in 1986, it was widely reported that the swivel was so well designed that the gate could be opened with just the push of one finger. And when it broke in 1986, the 9-ton gate required six men and a crane to remove and reinstall what Leedskalnian put up alone. What they discovered when they did the repair was that it used a metal shaft placed in a hole drilled through the stone positioned to balance the gate perfectly. The shaft itself sat on a truck bearing. What caused the gate to break was simply that the bearing became rusted. They replaced the bearing and shaft and again had to fix it in 2005 but today it is no longer quite so easy to open and close as it once was. Ed believed that the animating force in the universe does not come from the protons and electrons in the atom, but rather from tiny magnets of different and opposite polarity that imbue all matter. In his book Magnetic Currents, Leedskalnin explained the principle. Because the magnet can be shifted and concentrated, you can see that the metal is not the real magnet. The real magnet is the substance that is circulating in the metal. Each particle in the substance is an, indiv is an individual magnet by itself, and contains both north and south pole individual magnets. They are so small they can pass through anything. In fact, they can pass through metal easier than they can pass through air. They are in constant motion running one kind of magnet against the other, and if guided by the right channels, they possess perpetual power. It is this perpetual power that Ed claims to have harnessed in order to move, carve, and place his humongous stones. The power itself came from a machine he dubbed the Perpetual Motion Holder. He built it on his idea that electricity is made up of two magnetic forces that move opposite each other in a double helix motion. Ed's machine was composed of two coiled wires, each having its own terminal and current, and connected to each other nose to tail in a circuit. This completed circuit allowed individual magnets to form into one of two currents, and the currents to chase each other in a never-ending loop. Ed claimed that by directing this perpetual electromagnetic energy, he could easily manipulate the large stones. According to unverified reports, the massive stones would then be floated into place like hydrogen balloons. Deriding the theories of conventional archaeologists, Ed is quoted as saying he had found out how the Egyptians and the ancient builders of Peru 
Yucatan and Asia with only primitive tools raised and set in place blocks of stone weighing many, many tons. Leed Scallion originally built the castle in Florida City, Florida, around 1923. The castle remained in Florida City until about 1936, when Leed decided to move house and take the castle with him. He hired a single wagon and a single driver, and with no other help he spent the next three years moving the component structures of his coral castle ten miles north from Florida City to its current location outside Homestead, Florida. At Florida City, Leeds Skelnillan charged visitors ten cents apiece to tour the castle grounds, but after moving to Homestead, he asked for donations of 25 cents, but let visitors enter for free if they had no money. There are signs carved into the rocks at the front gate to ring the bell twice. And when you did so, he would come down from his living quarters in the second story of the castle tower, close to the gate, and conduct the tour. He never told anyone who asked him how he made the castle. He would simply answer, It's not difficult if you know how. When asked why he had built the castle, Leedskelnin would vaguely answer it was for his sweet 16. This is widely believed to be a reference to Agnes Scuffs. Leedskelnin was an eccentric and lived on an exclusive diet of only crackers and sardines. In his later years, he starved himself. And when Leeds Scalnillan became ill in November 1951, he put a sign on the door of the front gate and it said going to the hospital. And he took the bus to Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. He suffered a stroke at one point, either before he left for the hospital or actually at the hospital. And he died 28 days later of kidney infection at the age of 64. His death certificate noted that his death was a result of failure of the kidneys, as a result of the infection and abscess. While the property was being investigated, just $3,500 were found, which is the equivalent of $34,897 in today's money. And that was what was found among his personal possessions. He had made his income from conducting tours, selling pamphlets about various subjects, including magnetic currents, and the sale of a portion of his 10-acre property for the construction of the US Route 1. As he had no will, the castle became the property of his closest living relatives in the United States, a nephew from Michigan named Harry. And there we have it. Little guy, 5 foot tall, 100 pound, Edward Leedskalnin, moving stones on his own, weighing 30 tonnes, 25 feet high creating pivots where the rocks rolled effortlessly? Or was he using magnets? Were these huge stones levitating into the sky? Who's to say? Not me. All we can do is admire the man and recognise he was one who lived his own way. I salute you, Edward Leedskalnil, with a quick drink of this whiskey. Christ, I forgot. Anyway, 
Thanks for joining us down at Kraken Cove. Uh, next week we will, I'm sure, be joined by Benny for a more uh, conventional uh, episode. But I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of mystery today, and I hope you've enjoyed a nice bit of smooth, smooth jazz. Let's have a little bit of music out from Chris Cheesemonger Trio, who were playing the uh, last time we had the uh, Kraken Cove radio. And it's one of his great little hits. It might be spreadable, but it sure ain't edible. Good night, folks. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at Podcast at gmail.com on Twitter at Kraken Cove or Instagram 